Take your Bibles, please. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Let's begin by reading verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Amen. Keep in mind the context here as we seek to unpack this set of verses. What Paul had just written in verses 2 through 4, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and I think that's always important to keep in mind as we read through the Bible. You'll often hear me, Paul said, Paul wrote, understand that it's ultimately God who is working through the Apostle Paul. And it's important to understand that because this call to unity is not just Paul's desire that they be unified as a church, but it is what God desires for them to be unified. He charges them in verse 2 to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. He then calls them to humility in verse 3 by telling them, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem other better than themselves. And in verse 4, there's a call to serve one another. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so this call is to unity, it is to humility, and it is to service. Unity and service both require humility. To do it right. It requires humility. And knowing people as well as we do, we can imagine there would be some who heard this letter being read and they thought, you really want me to esteem that one better than me? I mean, I don't really like that person. I want to remind you, the Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. Therefore, if you are finding it difficult to esteem or to value others above yourself, then you're being prideful. What makes you think you're better than somebody else? Now, God knows that we are prone to pridefulness. And because God knows that we would find it difficult at times to be unified as a result of our pride, He now directs Paul to write verses 5 through 8. And what he gives us here is the example of Christ. In Christ, we have the example of unity with His Father. We have Christ's example of humility. And we have His example of serving. He was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. It's as if this text... It's almost as if if verses 2 through 4 aren't enough for you to be humble, to serve, to be unified, if that's not enough for you, then it's almost like God saying, okay, if that's not going to do it, let me remind you of what Christ did. Let me remind you of what He went through and how He served others before Himself and how He was unified with the Father and just how He conducted Himself. And so, 
we have to see past the doubt that this is somehow unattainable. That somehow we will never be unified, that we will never be able to rightfully serve one another. And, and listen, it's not unattainable. It, it is something to be grasped. It, we are given the example here of Christ. It is, this is a charge by God. This is what God expects. This is what God wants. Therefore, it is something we can achieve. And I believe that all of us, to probably varying degrees, depending on your growth point, need to have the reminder of this set of verses. Because our spiritual enemy is always seeking to divide and conquer the body of believers. That's his goal here at Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. We're not being attacked from the outside. Amen. But we can close up shop from the inside out. And that's what the enemy would want. The enemy wants to pit people against each other by getting our eyes off of Christ and getting our focus on the faults and weaknesses of others in a harsh, negative, and judgmental and prideful way. Therefore, our attention here, it is turned back to Christ in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a very popular verse, but you have to know and remember the context. If you think unity, humility, and service are difficult things to possess and to be to fulfill, then consider Christ. Let Christ's mind be in you. So if you are truly desirous to be unified as a church body, and I hope you are, and you desire to esteem others better than yourself, to serve one another, then we must look to Christ who went before us and gave us the example to follow. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-23 through 23 say, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow His steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. And you know, we would be well served if we would just learn to trust God to deal with people. Instead of us feeling like we have to take matters into our own hands all the time. So we're told to have the mind of Christ. Now I reckon we could do a whole series on that verse alone. But we're not going to do that. We'll leave that alone. Maybe we'll come back to that another time. But what follows in verses 6-8 through eight is going to explain what it means to have the mind of Christ in this context of humility, uh, service, and unity. And so let's read verses 6-8 through eight again. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we see here in verse 6 that he uh, was in the form of God. This doesn't mean that he looked like God in his physical appearing. He wasn't walking around with one of those sunburst halos around his head that you see in all the Catholic paintings, right? In other words, if he was walking down the street, you wouldn't go, ah, there's the Messiah. He didn't look like God walking among us, if whatever that picture is to you, that's not how he would have looked. There was not this aura about him that made him distinguishable from other men. He looked like a regular man. 
Isaiah 53, 2 says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. And he looked so much like a normal guy that in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, they said, Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They were offended at him. Mark 6.42, or John 6.42. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Hmm. He just looked like another guy. He looked like an ordinary man. But we know he was no ordinary man. When Jesus stood and he rebuked the wind and the sea, he said, Peace, be still. The wind ceased and the the sea became calm. And the disciples who were once fearful of the storm are now fearful of this man. And they said, What manner of man is this? They were seeing that this looks like just another Jew. But this is no ordinary man. There is something different. Why even the wind and the sea obey Him. Listen, if somebody can command nature, that's a tip-off. Is this man really God in the flesh? And with that, perhaps there is no verse that is more hotly debated than verse 6 in all of the Bible. Who is Jesus? Verse 6 has been changed in some modern versions. I didn't go looking at all of them. I only looked at two the NIV and the ESV. The ESV is the version that is now beginning to creep into our independent Baptist churches. Now, to be fair, I'm not very knowledgeable in Greek. I barely can speak English properly. I had to look up today what a colon means in a punctuation mark. So, I'm not the best person to go uh, asking some of this to, but it would seem to me that our newer versions have not only changed the wording of verse 6, but they have actually corrupted it. I'll do my best not to get bogged down here, but the ESV interprets this verse as, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, which is it? Was Jesus equal with God or not? And this is an extremely important verse because of the attack on Jesus' deity that we see taking place with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Unitarians, and we could throw in other religions. There is an onslaught against who Jesus really was. Because if Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, hear me well, you don't have Bible salvation. Now our King James Bible makes it clear in this verse, that Jesus is in fact equal with God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That Greek word for equal is isos, where we get our English word isosceles. And it's the same word used in John 5.18, which says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him, because He not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. Same word. Jesus was not just another man, but He was, no, 
He is God. There hasn't been a time that Jesus did not exist. There has not been a time that Jesus was not God. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And when Jesus was born into this world, it was Almighty God robing Himself in flesh and dwelling or tabernacling among men. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So being in the form of God, Jesus is the very nature of God. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 say, uh, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that uh, Jesus, who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, speaking of Jesus about, uh, as God, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Is it okay if I keep just give you a bunch of verses tonight? John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip saith unto Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto them, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, showest us the Father? 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You see, this is why Satan seeks to get people to believe that Jesus was not God in the flesh. Because in so doing, Satan blinds the minds of those who believe not. If they will believe that Jesus is God, then the light of the glorious gospel will shine unto them. And because Jesus is God, this is why verse 6 says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because He was God. He is God. For some, the Trinity is a confusing concept. Amen. I can tell you it's something that I have grown into. It can be hard to understand, and I I get that. 
How can God exist in three persons and yet still be one God? Well, I still like what Eric McCarty said once on this issue. It has always stuck with me in explaining the Trinity. I am a son to my parents, a husband to my wife, and a father to my children. I am one person, but I am manifested in three different roles. I think that's a pretty good explanation. And so God is one God, but He is manifested as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. God the Father in heaven, God the Son who died to save sinners, and God the Holy Spirit who indwells those who receive God's salvation through Christ's finished work on the cross and faith in Him alone. Well, how is it that God can be manifested equally in heaven and upon earth at the same time? Well, first of all, He's God. God who can say, let there be light, and there's light, can pretty much do what He wants to do, but it's because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere and in all times. Well, that's hard for me to wrap my head around. Well, that may be. But I'm not sure that our finite minds could ever fully comprehend the totality of who God is. So we believe it by faith. I knew y'all were a bunch of weak-minded bunch of people. Call it what you want. I'd much rather believe God spoke it into existence than to think we just happened to end up with five fingers and five toes. All right, I'm going to move on here. Let's leave it there for now. Look at verse 7. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So though he was in the form of God and equal with God, Jesus made himself of no reputation. You see, earlier it talked about vainglory. Jesus was not interested in vainglory. He emptied himself. And he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, one of the other debates from this passage is whether or not Jesus laid aside anything when he robed himself in flesh. Did anything have to be set aside as he came to seek and to save those that are lost? It seems like I've heard someone say that just recently, that Jesus laid aside nothing. Well, he did not give up the attributes of his deity. And while he, really what he did is he simply added flesh. He took on flesh. But he had to have laid aside something. Really, verse 7 explains it just by how it reads. That he must have laid aside something, for it says Jesus made himself. He made himself of no reputation. If he had to make himself, then he had to empty himself of something. John 17, 5, when Jesus is about to go forward into the whole process of being betrayed and ultimately crucified, he prayed to the Father, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had before the world was. Evidently, Jesus laid aside some glory in being in the flesh. Or else how could he pray those words? Why would he need to have the glory that he once had? Does this make simple enough sense? Because I know this is a very debated thing. 
And we understand that had to be true from when Jesus was on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. It says in Matthew 17 too, And Jesus was transfigured before them, and His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. Now, He didn't walk around like that. I already kind of explained that. This is how He was transfigured. This is how He looked in His fullness. After Jesus resurrected, it says in Mark 16, 12, that Jesus appeared in another form, which is the same Greek word for form here in our text. We are not given a description of how He appeared after His resurrection, but clearly there was something unrecognizable about Christ initially. For there are two walking back to Emmaus, and they're like, yeah, have you not heard what's been happening? And Jesus is like, no, what? <laughs> and so there was something unrecognizable about Him. I mean, even at first Mary didn't catch it. And so He, he had to have laid aside some of His glory. Uh, the form He possessed before coming to this earth it was different from the form while he had physically upon this earth. And the form he had after he resurrected was different from the form that he had for the previous 33 and a half years. During his physical earthly ministry, we are told he was in the form of a servant. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. He was made a little lower for the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Therefore, in order that he could take upon himself the form of a servant, we see in verse 8 that Christ had to humble himself. He emptied himself. He took to himself the form of a humble servant. Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered, not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom for many. Luke twenty two twenty seven says, For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. He became a servant. And Christ gave us the greatest example of being a humble servant in John 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. Our feet are way cleaner than they were back then, and I doubt many of us would like to do that today. And yet Jesus humbled Himself, and He washes the disciples' feet. And He said in John 13, 14, and 15, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. We see in verse 8 that Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And this is another instant where modern versions get this wrong. They read that He humbled Himself, this is quote, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. 
But our King James Bible says he became obedient unto death. There's a big difference there. His obedience didn't cost him death. But his obedience was to die. Death had no command over Christ. He said, I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up. His obedience was to the Father's will, and the Father's will was death, so that Christ might bear our punishment for us. This was the only way for our sins to be forgiven. Jesus had to be sinless, or else He would need someone to die for Him. And because Jesus needed to be sinless, therefore He had to be God. But He needed to be man that He could die for us. That He might bear what we were owed. This is why there isn't salvation in any other. For There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Hebrews 10, 7 through 10 says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, I sure wish I was able to better expound these verses, and I hope you'll continue to study these these verses for yourself. They're so rich. And I encourage you to listen to some doctrinally sound preachers because they can give you some good insight on this. And maybe you'll leave with a much better understanding in the process. But let me close by making application to us. Where do fractured and splintered relationships in a church family come from? Remember the context here is that of unity, humility, and service. Why is there a lack of unity? Why is there a lack of humility? Why is there a lack of service amongst people who call themselves the children of God? It comes from our lack of being Christ-like. Which is what being a Christian means. Just as Jesus humbled Himself, so we must learn to die to ourselves. We too must empty ourselves of self. And become a humble servant. And then, and only then, will there be unity in the church. Understand that when Jesus arrived on the scene, it was His right to rule. Hey, He had all power. He said, I could presently call 12 legions of angels. But He didn't. He came to serve. This is what we need to do. We must learn to serve each other. 
look on the things of others. Well, I deserve a lot more glory than that. Look at what Jesus did, my friend. Jesus laid aside His full glory. But unfortunately, there will be times because we are still flesh, we are still battling our sin nature, there are times that individuals will want nothing more than their uninterrupted glory. But that's not the example that Jesus left us. You see, Jesus had a higher priority than His uninterrupted glory. He said, I will humble myself. I will set aside some of my glory that I might come and serve humanity that's going to spit in my face, that's going to curse me, that is going to reject and deny me, but I'm coming anyway. Because I love them so much, I will die for them. Now you say, is that how you expect me to act when somebody does that to me? It's not about what I want. What's the Bible say? He had a higher priority. The saving of sinners and the dying by dying in the likeness of sinful man. So why is it that we watch relationships come to an end? It could be a marriage relationship. It could just be friendships. Why is it not working out? Well, they should have never said what they did. Well, they they should have never done that. And before I humble myself, they need to do this or that and then the next thing. Come on now. Oh yeah, I'll forgive just as soon as they come to me and ask me right. As soon as they do it in the way that I feel like they ought to be saying it. Am I in anybody's living room yet? No wonder marriages fall apart. No wonder friendships fall apart. We are not humbling ourselves and being obedient to the Father's will. Aren't you glad God didn't put conditions upon salvation? Absolutely. He never said you have to act a certain way or do a certain work before I'll even entertain forgiving you. But isn't that what we do? Well, you know, preacher, I just didn't like what you said. Well, it depends what I said. Sometimes I may say, I don't care whether you like it or not because you need to hear it. But that aside, pulpit aside, I really don't like what you said. And I think you need to do this and that before we'll entertain forgiving you. I wish it was a joke, sis. Listen, I'm just using me as an example. Fill your name in. I'm sure it's happened to you at some point. You know, all Jesus said is, come unto me. Come unto me. Learn of me. And I'm simply telling you tonight, stop putting conditions upon your forgiveness towards others. It's going to lead to bitterness. It's going to lead to withdrawal. And oftentimes what i found is the other party actually is trying to do the right thing. It's just not in the way that maybe we wanted it to be. So do we really want unity? then we have to humble ourselves. You see, we need to be a church of nobodies 
and not a church of a bunch of somebodies. You know, I'm somebody. You ought to come hear me. You ought to hear me when I preach. You know, you ought to come hear me when I sing. I'm somebody. You're nothing. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came tonight? You see, we need to crucify our egos and our own glory that we think we're due. We need to be of no reputation, but we need to serve one another in humility. And, and here's the bottom line, folks. Listen, we just need to become obedient. That's what Jesus did. He became obedient. That's where divisions, strife, schisms, and all the rest take place. And that's why Paul says, Fulfill ye my joy. Be like-minded. Esteem others better than yourself. Look on the needs of others. Let's pray.